Then this morning in your Bible, if you would turn to Ephesians 1, uh, we'll be reading and considering the verses 15 through 23 as we make our way expounding this epistle. Ephesians 1 in your pew Bible, you can find this on page 1343. We'll be reading this section in its entirety. Uh, The focus will be on the earlier verses of this section rather than the latter verses, and that's not to, of course, deny that the latter verses are inspired and speak of the uh, depths of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, but because we find that there is so much material within this passage, uh, we just acknowledge that for uh, our purposes this morning, we'll be looking more specifically uh, at the first half of this section, but we read from verse 15 through 23. Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And thus far this morning, our reading from the word of God. A congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, even in everyday practical life, we are all known for something. Uh, There are certain characteristics that apply to us. Uh, You can think perhaps even of stature, and so we say that uh, some people are tall people. Uh, Other people, uh, by contrast, are of a shorter stature. Uh, You can think of a personality. You might say, well, this person has a very outgoing personality. Or in contrast, you might refer to a person and say, well, he or she uh, is more timid, more shy, more reserved. And if you take that reality... Uh, and you then multiply it, you can also say the same thing about a collection of persons, such as we have here in our congregation. So there is a certain congregational perspective uh, that we have. There are certain characteristics, certain attributes that we as a congregation have. That's true for all congregations, for all churches. It was true for each one of the churches which the Apostle John addressed in the book of Revelation. And you can make your way through them. Uh, the church of Ephesus, the church of Smyrna, etc. Each, each had its own flavor, you might say. That was recognized and acknowledged and also addressed by the Apostle John, or you might say, by the Lord Jesus Christ. The same is true in Ephesians 1. The church in Ephesus, as Paul interacted with it, as Paul knew it, had certain characteristics, uh, certain things it was known for. And just to engage our mind, I want to 
present you with the question for you to reflect upon, what is it that we as a congregation are known for? If we were to poll those who know us but are not necessarily among us, what would they say about Covenant Reformed Church in Pella, Iowa? I do believe that that's the most profitable question for us to reflect upon as individual persons since each one of us contributes something towards the overall summary of what we are and what we are known for. It's also a most profitable question for those who are in positions of leadership to reflect upon. What are we known for? Well, as we'll look at this morning, the church in Ephesus was known for its faith and for its love. And as Paul acknowledged that, he does so by giving thanks to God. And that's our theme this morning, an expression of gratitude for the spiritual growth of the church. And we'll notice, first of all, the setting for the expression, and then secondly, the request in the expression, and then thirdly, the desire behind the expression. So the Apostle Paul, he reflects as he's led by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit upon the characteristics or the attributes or the spirit of the church in Ephesus. And as he reflects upon that, it leads him to express gratitude, thanksgiving to God for the spiritual growth of the church. We'll look at the setting, the request, and the desire. First of all, the setting for this expression. What is it that moves the Apostle Paul to give forth this thanks? Well, he hears, he hears a report. He's not physically present at this time in the church of Ephesus, but you notice verse 15, therefore I also, after I heard most likely, he had heard a report from a co-laborer, Atticus, concerning the spiritual condition of the church there in Ephesus. And as this report was brought, just notice that it focused upon the spiritual characteristics, the spiritual life of the congregation. Uh, I hope you'll bear with some anecdotal illustrations from the week gone past at Synod. At uh, Synod, 2018 created a new functionary position of statistician for our federation. Uh, and we have a wonderfully gifted person who fills that role, and she has compiled all sorts of statistics about individual churches within our federation and about the churches altogether within our federation. Uh, the transfers in, the transfers out, baptism, deaths, discipline, exercised the age of the ministers within our federation, all very interesting, and this is certainly not in any way critical of the position or the person who fills the position, but I find it kind of interesting that that's where our minds are immediately drawn. And we had a week of interaction among co-labors in the gospel and Oftentimes, the conversation goes like this. Oh, you're Reverend so-and-so. Well, where are you ministering? Well, this church. And very, very, very quickly, the question is, how large of a church is that? How many members are there? Again, I'm not saying that these are completely inappropriate questions. But Paul doesn't say, having heard of your numerical growth, 
having heard of the development within your facilities, having heard of the number of transfers in, I give thanks. You'll notice that the focus is completely, exclusively upon the spiritual maturity, the ongoing spiritual growth, because he has received a truly pastoral report. And and I can imagine that he would have asked Tychicus as he came to him, tell me about the spiritual development of the church there in Ephesus. Are, Are they growing in the faith? And is that evident by a growth also in Christian love? And and are those the types of reports that we long to hear? Are those the types of things that we are analyzing when we think of church and when we think of churches? This is an essential question. And Paul, upon hearing the positive report of the atmosphere, of the growth, of the characteristic of the church in Ephesus is moved to give thanks. And he does so because he has heard of the evidence of grace. What is grace? We often say it's God's riches at Christ's expense. It is a transformative power. It is a power that is obtained by the Lord Jesus Christ, that is poured out by the Holy Spirit, that comes into the hearts and into the lives of those who are chosen unto salvation and renews them, makes them spiritually alive, gives them both the capacity for the exercise of faith, but also the exercise of faith itself. And the Apostle Paul, as he listens to the report, uh, he hears evidence of the transformative power of grace, as grace produces faith. You'll notice that in verse 15, that's where his focus is. Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, he puts that first and foremost. Because this congregation, no matter what anyone else may say, this is the most essential characteristic of a Christian that they have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul elsewhere uses this triad of faith, hope, and love, but faith is always first. Because the other two will flow out of true saving faith. If you have faith, you will have hope and you will have love. But without faith, without faith, there will not be any hope and there will not be any love. And so the Apostle Paul, he longed to hear of the exercise of faith, and so also we long to hear of the increasing exercise of faith. And notice that the faith has an exclusive object, uh, and we perhaps risk repetition, but if repetition is demanded by the text of Scripture, then it is really not a risk at all. You notice that time and time again, the Apostle Paul is almost, you might say, fixated upon the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we need to emphasize this also. In our day, faith often is referred to in some vague, subjective way. Oh, he has faith, or they have faith, or she has faith. Faith in what? You see, that's also very important. Faith in what? And the Apostle Paul is so thankful because the congregation in Ephesus has their faith directed exclusively to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. They don't have faith in themselves. They don't have faith in that they are superior to the other inhabitants of Ephesus. They don't have faith that they're not prone to idolatry. They have a knowledge and a trust, a reliance 
upon the person of Jesus Christ and his work alone. And may I humbly but also pointedly ask you this morning, do you also have that exclusive faith? When you think about what it means to be a Christian, is your answer first and foremost to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? I hope, I pray, and I trust that that is true of us as individuals and as a congregation. And so would it not be a wonderful testimony to God's grace if someone was asked about the members of Covenant Reformed Church if they were compelled to say one thing about those people? They have faith in Jesus Christ. They're constantly preaching, constantly talking, constantly conversing about who Jesus Christ is and what he has done. And it's evident that their hope is in him and in him alone. The Apostle Paul not only hears of the evidence of grace in regards to faith, but also then love. Faith, hope, and love. And you might say that hope is included in faith. That might be part of the reason why the Apostle Paul doesn't mention it in verse 15, although he does mention it uh, later on in the text, so it's not absent. Verse 18, you find there the evidence uh, of hope. But faith and love. Love is a fruit of faith. Love is a fruit of grace. Love is a fruit of the indwelling operation of the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit includes love. It's not an option. It's not like the Christian graces are items on a buffet line where you can take the ones that you enjoy and bypass the ones that you find unpalatable. If we have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, there will be a measure of love, love towards God, yes, but notice that this love, as the Apostle Paul mentions it here, deals with how love is exercised among the saints. Paul says, I am so profoundly thankful for the evidence of grace and the fact that you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and you have love for all the saints. This love is not just some sentimental feeling of warm affection. Not just the, the smile that immediately comes upon seeing someone that you have close affinity with. Love, scripturally speaking, is the recognition of the reality of a bond. And that bond is found in being a saint. And that the reality that there are other saints, fellow saints, and that everyone who is a saint is a saint on the same basis. The work of the Lord Jesus Christ and as a result of the same powerful, transformative work of grace. You see, in a, in a congregation, if we look at one another with this understanding that he, she, is a saint, not in and of themselves, of course, we all recognize that we are still fallen sinners. But if we look and say, he or she is a saint because of grace, and I am a saint because of grace, undeserved merit from Jesus Christ. And he or she is a saint because they have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I am a saint because I also have faith. You see, this gets to the heart of the real unity of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And then there is the recognition of this bond, that we are one family with one God, with one Father, with one faith, with one Spirit, united together. This love recognizes the reality of this bond. You know, it's often said, you get to pick your friends. You don't get to pick your family. And so when you think of your fellow saints, you don't get to pick who's a saint and who's not a saint. Who does the picking? God alone. And God has seen fit to choose everyone who's a saint to be a saint and to be a part of the one family of God. Love also then includes a selflessness, a sacrifice. Love is not puffed up. You can read all through 1 Corinthians 13. Love does not seek its own. This, of course, it could be applied to marriage. At the end of the day, what is it that causes friction in marriage? The absence of the exercise of sacrificial love. Love is so fundamental for the well-being of any relationship, especially that of a church, of a congregation. We can have everything else, as 1 Corinthians 13 makes clear, but if we don't have love, just a resounding gong, just an annoying instrument beating one note to the horror of the ears that hear it. If we have not love, we are nothing. Now do you see why the Apostle Paul rejoices when he hears that the Ephesians have love? And notice that one little word, all the saints. Because if you're honest, and if I'm honest, some saints are easier to love than others. Some saints, their personalities, their interests, their demeanor, it's easy to exercise a fraternal love towards them. But all, all the saints, the ones who are not so likable, the ones who are not so easy to interact with, to get along with, yes, all the saints. I rejoice, Paul says, having heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. If the Apostle Paul would hear a report of Covenant Reformed Church, would he say the same? I ask the question just to encourage our reflection upon this text. I don't have the answer. I just ask the question. As we transition uh, into our second point, the Apostle Paul also has a request in the expression. He's thankful for the spiritual maturing that is going on in the life of the church at Ephesus, especially in their exercise of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and the evidence of their love for all the saints. And then he also says that he gives request along with his thanksgiving. 
Notice verse 16, uh, that he does not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. And then you get into the request that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him in the eyes of your understanding, being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe. Now, you, you see even with the reading of it, this is a packed, a packed statement. There is a wealth of theological terms and there is a depth of theology uh, that we certainly cannot plumb the depths of uh, in the time allotted to us this morning. Uh, but just notice that his request, you could say, first of all, his prayer for the Ephesian church is that they might have a spiritual perception, a spiritual perception uh, that they might have a spirit of wisdom. And the word here, uh, revelation, uh, as it's also used in verse 17. And then verse 18, understanding, enlightenment. Now each one of these words has a slightly different nuance. Wisdom, revelation, understanding, enlightenment. But if you, if you put them all together, uh, it is a spiritual perception. This is what the Apostle Paul is praying for the Ephesian church to have. An increasing perception of spiritual realities. And, and what we would also say, an experiential perception. Not just an intellectual, not just an abstract theoretical knowledge of the gospel, but a personal, a spiritual, an experiential. He wants them to increasingly get, if I can use that word, the wonder of the gospel. And I use the illustration, and perhaps it's silly, but boys and girls, you know, I could, I could tell you, back in Michigan, Lake Michigan, you can go out on the lake, and you can go fishing, you can go salmon fishing. I could tell you all about salmon fishing. Well, not all about it. I don't know everything about it, but I could tell you about salmon fishing. And I, and I could tell you, you know, those who go out who do salmon fishing, when all of a sudden that, that fishing pole bends, and you hear somebody say, fish on. Maybe you hear the line start to be pulled out. There's a feeling that the fishermen get, a feeling of excitement. The fight's on. And I could tell you what you're supposed to do to catch a salmon, to bring it in, to net it, to hold it up for the picture. I could tell you all of those things. But that wouldn't give you an understanding of what it is to catch a salmon in Lake Michigan. To actually get the sense of what it's like to catch a salmon, you have to actually catch a salmon. Then you'll know. Then you'll know the excitement of it. The Apostle Paul's not saying, I just want you to know in your mind, theoretically, intellectually, academically, the doctrines of the gospel, I want you to get, I want you to get the power of the gospel. I want you to understand its glory. I want you to understand the amazingness of grace, the wonderful realities 
of who Jesus Christ is and of what he has done. I want you to sense the glory of redemption. But you see, the Apostle Paul himself can't give the Ephesians that for which he prays for. Just like I, I, I cannot give you this spiritual understanding. Only the Holy Spirit can give you the spiritual understanding of the wonder of the gospel. And so Paul, recognizing his pastoral limitations, he can preach, but only the Spirit can drive it home to the hearts of individuals. So he turns in prayer and he says, I consistently, I constantly make this request that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation, understanding, enlightenment. And those who are called to be in positions of leadership in this congregation, I would encourage you to pray, pray earnestly that the congregation in total, but also in individual, may receive an increasing understanding of the absolute wonder of redeeming grace. Because it's a gift. It's not something that's earned. It's not something that's labored for. It's not something that's brought about by our own activities or merits. Uh, notice verse 17. Uh, uses the word there, may give. And, and there's also a danger theologically that we become self-reliant. That we begin to think that if we just simply use the means and study diligently that we will come to this experiential understanding of the profound wonder of the gospel. Certainly we use the means, but we use the means in dependency upon the Spirit who blesses the means. And so even in the construction of a sermon, you know, it's one thing to construct a sermon that you hope is exegetically based, that, that does justice to the text of Scripture, and that is, you know, homiletically suitable uh, to address the, the mind, the, the ear of the hearer with the appropriate structure and the appropriate flow and, uh, you know, logical points and subpoints and everything else, and, and to study the art of homiletics, that is, of preaching, and, and how, you know, this type of a preaching oftentimes has been blessed, whatever it may be. But is it a completely another thing to pray, Lord, give the congregation understanding? Because there's a limit to what the minister can do. But there's no limit to what the Spirit can do. And apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, the minister, the minister cannot change anyone. And apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, the minister cannot influence the congregation at all. But the Spirit can. And so we could just ask ourselves in our own prayers on behalf of this congregation, in essence, is there the frequent prayer, would you give us the spirit of wisdom? And you also can think of this when it comes to the assemblies of the church, whether it be a council meeting, whether it be a consistory meeting, whether it be a diaconate meeting, whether it be a Bible study meeting. And you can think of synod in the past week, 
You know, at times there were deliberations on difficult matters. There always has to be the essence of this prayer, Lord, give us wisdom. Give us understanding. Give us spiritual perception that our eyes might be opened, that our hearts might be warmed, that we might be focused upon the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Uh, and you notice that this all flows out of a desire. Uh, in our third point, the desire is seen beginning in verse 18, and it flows all the way through the end of verse 23. Uh, but the desire is really just that the church there in Ephesus, through this spiritual understanding being gifted to them, that they may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And in verse 19 through 23, it goes on and it describes in wonderfully inspiring phrases the work of the Lord Jesus Christ in redemption. But, but that's really the desire. The desire of the Apostle Paul was always this, that his hearers, that the congregations might have a knowledge, a knowledge of the redeeming work of God in and through Jesus Christ. And so you can just look, for example, in verse 19. There, there's both the mention uh, there of the works of exaltation, worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. This is the most transformative understanding that a person can have, especially in our day and in our age and in our culture. You know, we're heating up in the political cycle uh, with elections just around the corner, uh, and all of that is, yes, we're to be engaged. We think we've covered that uh, to some extent with our recent sermons on the Belgian Confession, uh, but you hear so much talk of people who say, in essence, well, the sky is falling, culture's down the tubes, everything is complete mess, we're all filled with despair. And I just want to warn myself and warn those of us who are older, that type of talk is contagious to the younger members of the church, the younger members of the community. Uh, and we dare not give this impression to them uh, that everything is bad because Jesus Christ is still on the throne, and that must also be communicated to them. And our desire for our children and our grandchildren and perhaps even our great-grandchildren should be this desire. Oh, that they would see something of the exaltation of Jesus Christ. That, that when they hear of principalities and powers and mights and dominions and names that are named in this age, when they hear of presidents and kings and rulers and dictators and empires and tyrannical rulers... The desire would be that they would filter all of that in connection to the reality that there is one who is on the throne, Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And same thing uh, when they, along with ourselves, when we are confronted with the painful, discouraging realities of the brokenness that still exists within the church militant, and perhaps when young people are tempted to say nothing but hypocrisy in the church, they say this and they do that, that they would then come along with all of us to know that there is one head of the church. It's not a pope. It's not a minister. It's not an elder. It's not a deacon. It's not a king. It's not a president. 
It's Jesus Christ. He alone is the head of the church. And He is over all things to the church. And you see, if we begin to, again, not just in an academic way, understand this principle that Christ is head of the church, but if we get this with an experiential awareness, it will produce an increasing exercise of faith and of love. Now, you might say that we, in my position as pastor and you as congregation, that we're still in the honeymoon stage. Well, maybe you disagree, but maybe you agree to some extent. But anyone who's lived in the life of the church for a while is confronted with the imperfections of the church. Every one of you who is a member of this church, you know something of its imperfections. You know something of an issue or a decision or a matter that could cause you angst. In such a context, I would just lovingly remind you that the church is the bride of Christ. And he loves it with all of its imperfections, with all of its shortcomings, even with all of its brokenness. Now, that doesn't excuse the imperfections and the brokenness. But if Christ loves it, then those who belong to Christ also should love it. And that love should include a love for all the saints and a love for the head of the church, Jesus Christ. And so I leave this matter for your further reflection with just two closing exhortations in brevity. This passage, I believe, calls us to focus our heart's affections upon Jesus Christ. And then having our hearts focused upon Jesus Christ, this text also then calls us to love all the saints. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, your word that is life-giving, but we recognize that while your word is perfect in all of its ways, that there must also be the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit within our hearts, that we would be gifted spiritual perception in understanding. And so, Heavenly Father, our prayer this morning is that you would open our spiritual eyes and grant us sight, that we might see the glorious things that belong to Jesus Christ in his person and in his work. We pray this in his name. Amen.